Good morning. It's so beautiful to worship Jesus together, to take communion and remember what he has done for us. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, if you don't, or if you just prefer, we're going to have the scriptures up there as well. You can read. But let's begin by praying and asking for God's spirit to speak through his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth it brings. Lord, both the, the happy and the joyful truths and, um, and also the, the more difficult truths, Lord. And we're going to be hitting both this morning. So we just pray that you will help our hearts to be open and hear your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through uh, this message and that your spirit would speak your word to each of our hearts and that we would be good ground to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're uh, this is part two of uh, succeeding backwards. Uh, we've all heard the phrase uh, failing forwards, and I like that phrase. Um, failure can be a tremendous propelling power in our lives to move forward when we learn, when we grow from our failures. Well, I think there's also such a thing as succeeding backwards, where success can, can be our undoing. Success can actually eat away at our lives and at our souls in such a way that uh, it can all come tumbling down as well. So, and that's what happened to Saul. Uh, starting in chapter 13, we began to see Saul started out humble. He started out well. He, 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 he was doing great. But success, I think a big part of his failure was that success went to his head. And uh, in chapters 13 through 15, we see Saul go into a tailspin that's brought on not by failure, but by success. So I want to be clear before we jump into this. The problem isn't success. God wants us to succeed. Um, and we can just go through so many scriptures. You know, God promised Joshua, he says, wherever you, your foot lands, you will succeed. But he says, if you obey the commandments that I have given you. So... Uh, Proverbs 3, 4 says, if we obey God's word, we will win favor with God and man. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So we saw Jesus grew in favor with God and man. You hear that, that favor growing, that blessing that, you know, Paul assured us we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it's not like God's call to us is a call to be failures and fail in everything in life. God wants us to be successful in life. Most importantly, God wants us to be successful in joyfully entering heaven. And that's why Jesus came. So no one is more for you than God. But at the center of good success is obedience to God. Success without God is never success. It may feel like success for a while, but at the same time that, su that success apart from God, the same time that it's exalting us, it's also eating away at us. It's eating away at our lives. It's eating away at our souls until eventually our lives come crashing down. And that's what happens with Saul. And the wheels really come off in chapter 15. So chapter 15 begins with God giving Saul a brutal, disturbing command. 
See, this is where if we didn't go through the Bible, you know, like this, this is the kind of verse I would never land on, you know, um, we would just pass over, but we have to address the difficult passages. And so we're not going to take a lot of time with this, but we are going to talk about this a little bit. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to start. So God is speaking through the prophet Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the word words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's hard to hear. That's a difficult passage. God told Saul, we're not going to like paper over it. He said, go to the city of Amalek and kill every man, woman, child, every sheep, every ox, everything, kill them all. Now, we need to understand there is history here. Uh, and he says, uh, God, God notes what Amalek did to Israel as they're coming out of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's what happened. Um, the Amaleks were the first nation, or at least among the very first nations, to attack Israel unprovoked. As they were coming out of Egypt with under Moses' leadership, they attacked the Israelites, but they attacked those that were lagging behind. As, as the peoples moved through the wilderness, they came up and they brutally murdered all those that were slower moving. Well, who are mostly the slower moving? It's going to be the women and children. And so they brutally murdered all those that were kind of slowed down. The Amaleks were relentlessly committed to the genocide of the Jews. They wanted to kill the Jews, all the Jews. And so God says in Deuteronomy to Moses, the day is going to come when I will blot their name off the face of the earth. The last Amalekite that we read of is Haman in the book of Esther, where he plots a genocide against all Jews, and he tries to get the king of Persia to genocide all the Jews. So this is a people dedicated to destroying Israel, genocide, and God says, I am going to, God says, I am going to devote them to destruction. I'm going to take them off the face of the earth. Now, we can't do that, but God can do that. God can do that. But even knowing the history, it still disturbs us. It's still troubling. And it does give us a reminder of the vast difference between the way God dealt with sin in the Old Testament and the way God deals with sin in the New Testament and the way Jesus taught us to deal with our enemies in the New Testament. Now, we need to know that God didn't change. God didn't change. The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same God as the God of the New Testament. He didn't change. How he deals with men has changed through Christ. 
but God has not changed. And here's, here's one of the truths that is so uncomfortable, but we need to understand it, to understand who God is. So we're not making up a God. God hates sin. He hates sin with a ferocity that we cannot imagine. We get used to sin. We think, oh, that's not that bad a thing. And that's not it. God is opposed to sin. And he hates sin today with exactly the same hatred that he hated sin back then. The cross of Jesus Christ not only declares God's love for us, that's half the story, but it also got, declares God's ferocious hatred of sin, his, his enmity with sin. Why? We could spend a whole message on that, but sin destroys, it kills, it is cancer. To love sin or even to allow sin is to love cancer. It destroys and kills his creation. So God hates sin and the cross declares because on the cross, Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God for our sin. Every sin we have committed was absorbed. The wrath of God, the punishment of God was absorbed by Jesus on the cross as the sun went dark and God poured out, turned his face from the sun and poured out his wrath upon dear Jesus, his son, so that we would never, as Ken said, never face the fury and the wrath of God. That's good news, amen? That is good news. For those who trust in Christ, there is no wrath left. There's not even a little bit of wrath left in God's heart for you and me if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And communion speaks so loudly of that. It's the blood of Christ that covers us from sin so that we are given the righteousness of Christ and he took on our sinfulness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your savior, I wanna just urge you with all my heart to not let another day go by. None of us know our last hour on this earth. You are not, I am not, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. So I urge you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having tied that to what I just said, someone could easily say, who's not a believer, could easily say, that's just motivating me by fear, the fear of hell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember reading some time ago about a young man in Florida who came to a marina and he saw a sign, true story, the sign said, no swimming alligators. And as he was about to jump in, the marina worker came out and urged him, don't jump in, don't jump in. He laughed and he jumped in and immediately an alligator attacked him and killed him. You see, fear in that moment was his friend. It was his friend. That sign that motivated him, sought to motivate him by fear was his best friend. It was out to save his life. So when we say Jesus died for our sins, trust in him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The fear of God comes along as a healthy friend that says, don't go there. Don't face God in your own righteousness because you ain't got none. Face it in Christ and his righteousness. Trust in him. Salvation is the free gift of God through Christ. So all that to say, God, God deals 
with sin. And in the Old Testament, that was often the picture through peoples. Today, it's not. We don't, God doesn't do it quite the same way. So here we are, Saul and his army attacked and defeated the Amalekites. So this is successful. He has great success. He defeats them. But it was the success that sealed Saul's downfall because he disobeyed God's command. God told him very clearly to kill every person and all the livestock. That's very simple. If it breathes, kill it. But Saul spared King Agag and he spared the best of the livestock. Samuel says to Saul in verse 26, for you have rejected the word of the Lord by sparing these things. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Here's the thing, God's rejecting of Saul was not the result of a military failure. It was the result of a military success combined with disobedience to God's word. Saul's downfall, the, the final nail in the coffin, I would sum up as saying this, he listened to people more than God. And that's my first point. What people said became more important than what God said. You see, in this chapter, three times Saul both claims to have obeyed God, but then also blames any disobedience on the people. Verse 15, Saul says this, the people, I, I did what you wanted, Samuel. I did what God said. I, I went in, I won. But the people, verse 15, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest, we have devoted to destruction. We did what you said, the people spared some of them. Verse 20 and 21, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Okay, hold on. He was told to kill every person. I have brought the king of Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, partial obedience. But listen to verse 21. But the people took of the spoil oxen and the best of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gagal. There's so much in there, but basically he's just saying the people had good intentions and they did that. Finally, in 24, verse 24, Saul realizes, because Samuel's not buying any of this, Saul says in verse 24 to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's actually right about that. 
He's actually, he's actually understanding it. When Saul started out, if you remember his early days, hiding in the luggage, doesn't want to be king, he had nothing to lose. He had nothing to lose. So when a crisis came, what did Saul do? He didn't listen to the people. The people wanted to scatter. They didn't want to help their brothers. He rose up in the spirit of God and with a holy anger, and he said, folks, this is what you're going to do. But now he's had success. He's accumulated power, accumulated things. And now Saul has more to lose. And he starts caring more about what people said than what God said. I can relate to that. And I'll bet you can too. Caring about what people think and say about us. Listen, we live in the world. People's voices are all around us, right? What they think about us, what they say about us, it feels very important. Doesn't it? Be honest. It does. What God says, I mean, I don't really hear God. don't really, you know, in the same physical way I hear people. And you know what? It's not wrong to care about what people think and say about us. In fact, I would say that if you don't care at all about what people think and say about you, that's not healthy. It's good to care about what people think and say about us. In fact, it was what the people said in chapter 14 that stopped Saul from killing his own son because of some stupid oath Saul took. In that case, God was speaking to Saul through the people's voices. So it's kind of healthy to hear people. It's kind of healthy to weigh what people say. The danger line is when what people say contradicts what God says. That's when the danger line comes. And the truth is the volume of voices around us can feel, can make it feel like what people say is more important than what God says. Especially in this day when things can go viral. And there are so many voices ready to hate on someone if they say something they don't like. The voices of a lot of people, or even a few loud people. Are you tracking with me? Do you know, do you feel the pressure of a lot of voices speaking? Have you ever had a lot of people come against you or speak about you? or even just in a circle, the majority of people kind of speak against you or speak for you. And I mean, there's a pressure. Let's be honest, we all feel a pressure of some kind, unless we're a sociopath, going back to last week's message, we care about what people think and say, and we should. But when that line comes and what people say is on this side and what God says is on this side, it can feel like this is way louder, way more powerful, way more influential in my life. They can undo my life. I could go viral. This sermon could go viral. And all of a sudden, I got people hating on me from all around the world. Meanwhile, God can seem silent in comparison. 
people say seems so important, but the Bible says the exact opposite is true. What people say and think is a vapor. It's a vapor. It's a wind that will be here today and not tomorrow. But what God says is everlasting and firmly fixed in heaven. Psalm 119, 89. Jesus said not one jot or tittle or stroke of the pen from God's word will pass away until everything in the word, in this, is fulfilled. This is truth. This never goes out of style. Well, it might go out of style, but it never goes out of truth. Style may go out of truth. Let me just unpack that in a few applications. First of all, let's bring it home to us. <clears throat> because, uh, let's face it, I think a lot of our identity, we can be tempted to try to get our identity by what people say, right? We can try to, to figure out who we are according to what people say. And our identity is not determined by what people say. <clears throat> it's determined by what God says about you. That's what your identity is determined by. If we try to derive our identity from what people say, we will be chameleons changing in different groups and with different people saying different things. And so in this room, we're green, in this room, we're brown, in this room, we're, we're yellow. We're changing color like a chameleon with whatever the backdrop is because we're trying to shift our identity to what's popular and what people say. And that's not healthy. When we derive our identity from what God says about us, we are secure as his children. We are accepted in Christ. We are forgiven of all of our sin. We are precious in his sight. And we are citizens now of his eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ. And nothing can shake that. What this means, is that if everybody in the world, and this isn't gonna happen, but if everybody in the world suddenly hated on you and said you're the most horrible person who ever lived, and God said, I am pleased with you, the reality of who you are is God is pleased with you. We see that in, in some degree with Jesus. The world, many hated on him, crucified him, said he was horrible, he was a blasphemer, he was a sinner. He was this, he was that. Jesus said, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's reality about who Jesus is. <clears throat> so what I want to encourage us is to cultivate a conviction than what, that, that when people, what people say contradicts what God says, we know God is right. Let God be true and every man a liar. The word of God is true. <clears throat> Let me give you another Another uh, unfolding of this. 
A lot of people accept Jesus Christ as a good teacher and a good man. But Jesus didn't actually give us that option. That there is no good man and good teacher option for Jesus. Jesus said he was the narrow door by which we enter heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As C.S. Lewis said, anyone who says that, they're either a lunatic um, or a liar or what? Or for real. Yeah, thanks for finishing that thought. And it's true. It's true. These statements are breathtakingly narrow and exclusive because he's saying no one, no one, not one single human being will get to God through Muhammad. That offends a lot of people right there. No one will get to heaven through Buddha. No one will get to heaven through, you name it. No one, no one will get to heaven through being good, through being moral. No one, not one single person will be up there. How'd you get here? I, I was just a good person. I gave money to the poor. I helped the people here. And I'm, no one will be in heaven because of that. Everyone who is in heaven, who is in the kingdom, will have gotten there by one door, one narrow door, Jesus Christ. Now that, to someone who does not believe that, is offensive. It is arrogant. It is intolerant. It is, it is exclusivity on the highest level. How dare you? Who do you think you are to say that? But the question for us is, it's not who do we believe we are, it's who do we believe Jesus is. That's the question. Now, I think in the coming, and I don't, I don't mean this, you know, but this is already going on in a lot of countries around the world. There's a lot of persecution of Christians and churches going on around the world. I think that sense of hostility towards Christians is going to grow in this country because what this culture is kind of absorbing it goes against so much of what scripture says and certainly goes against the sense that one person is the truth and the way and the life and no one gets to God through him. It goes against that. So people believing this set of information understandably are going to think us to be horrible, intolerant, arrogant people if we hold to what we say. And that's my point. Will we be committed to follow Jesus when it's not popular at all to follow Jesus? Or when we're not just left alone to follow Jesus? When we suffer loss, when we have people reject us or hate us, will we still follow Jesus? <clears throat> Now, I want to share, so I was going to share this a little later, but I feel like this is a good moment to say this because <clears throat> um, there's a lot of people who reject the church and Christians because we haven't always done a very good job of representing Christ. We haven't always done a good job. And so they're not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting our arrogance or our lousy attitudes or our judgmentalism 
or our critical or cynicism or, or condescension. It is possible to know God's word and miss God's heart. The Pharisees are prime examples of that. They knew God's word. They know it better than you and I do, at least the Old Testament. <clears throat> they knew God's word, but they did not know God. They missed his heart because when God himself walked the earth as Jesus, the son of God, they hated him. They thought he was wrong. They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought, and listen, they used the Bible to back that up. You say you're God, that's blasphemy. Well, it absolutely is, unless you're God. <laughs> if I said I was a billionaire genius, I'd be arrogant and, and very wrong. If Elon Musk was standing here and he said he was a billionaire genius, be true. Probably shouldn't say it, but it'd be true. They said, you don't have the, no one has the authority to forgive sins except God. Bingo. See, they're using God's word. They brought a woman in adultery and they said, we're ready to throw stones. You know why? Because God's word tells us to do that. They knew God's word. They missed God's heart. God's heart was neither do I condemn you. So, I'm talking about a humble, loving witness for Jesus. I'm not talking about arrogant, condescending, judgmental, self-righteous. We need to be so careful of that. And that leads me to another very sensitive subject because it is a big issue today. It is a huge issue today. If we don't talk about it in the church, it's kind of like the elephant in the room we're not talking about. The Bible says God created us male and female. Now, 30 years ago, to say that would not have been controversial in any circle in the world. I don't think. Today, there's a lot of pressure not to say that. There's a lot of pressure from what people say not to say that. Some have lost their jobs. Some have been kicked out of schools for saying there's a difference between men and women. British biologist Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, not a Christian, he lost his Humanist of the Year award because he stated that biologically there are only two sexes. Lost his award. There's an ongoing debate today about transgenders participating in sports as their identified gender rather than their biological gender. Just this past September, just a few months ago, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, lifted the age restrictions for gender-affirming surgery, meaning now children under the age of 17 can be eligible for such surgeries. In the WPATH guidelines about those who have such surgeries, they state this. It is assumed that if they regret the surgery, they will learn to cope with the regret or will have an additional surgery. Now, 
that's one thing for an adult to make that decision. But for a, a child who is still developing, still forming their understanding of who they are and of their world. And there are cases right now of such, such uh, kids, young people who've had such surgeries and are now suing because they were misled. They feel like, okay, so here's my point with this. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, the most recent Supreme Court justice who was in her confirmation hearing was asked, what is a woman? And she refused to answer. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. The world needs a clear voice that is not angry, is not arrogant, is not sarcastic, but says, God made us male and female. He made us male and female. And that's a beautiful thing. Our sexuality is built deeply into the fabric of who we are, right down to our chromosomes. Y'all know this, but I find it kind of interesting. Men and women each have 23 pairs of chromosomes. 22 of those pairs are exactly the same. Only one pair is different between men and women. The last pair is different. Women have two X chromosomes and men have an X and a Y chromosome. And that makes a tremendous amount of difference in how all the chromosomes interact with each other. God created us beautifully different as male and female. Now again, I want to bring us back. How do we walk the lines with these things? Because I have cringed when I've heard Christians with sarcasm, with condescension, with self-righteousness, with anger, speak about those who might be struggling with these very issues. I cringe. Please don't do that. Please don't speak down to anybody. Okay? Please. Because you might know God's Word, and you're like, I'm going to throw the Word of God like a stone at you. You're missing God's heart. Here's what I say. Listen, we live in a time when people are wrestling with these issues. They're confused about these issues. Um, they're trying to work these issues out. If there's someone in your life who's confused or struggling with this or, or, or trying to work through this or uncertain about this, if they're gay or they're transgender or whatever they are, love them, please. Okay? Love them. Respect them. Befriend them, care about them, and like everyone else, try to point them to the Savior who loved them and gave his life for them. Okay? Amen? Because the voice today on both sides doesn't have that. And we need to build a bridge of love to every person, whatever they believe, in order to share Jesus with them. Okay. There's so many ways that what people say is going to try to press us over a line of contradictory to what God says. I want to just urge you, church, a million years from now, this will still be truth. Six months from now, people's opinions on half the things they believe today will be different. So let's believe this, but let's believe it humbly. 
Let's believe it with love. Let's not miss the heart of God in this because his heart is over every page in this book. Okay, I'm going along with that. Next step, I'm going to be really quick with this. The next step in Saul's demise is really an outflow of the first step, and it's simply this image became more important to Saul than, than reality. Here's what's happening. Saul has said, God's rejected you. I'm not going to show up with you to worship. I'm not going to kind of give you the gravitas of that. And he starts to leave, and that's when Saul grabs his his cloak and it rips and he says God has torn the kingdom from you he has rejected you as king and he's given it to someone else that's going to be David but Saul says to Samuel in verse 30 I have sinned listen to this yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Saul drops all pretense that this is about God. This is about what people will think of him. Honor me now in front of the elders and in front of Israel. Make me look good. Help my worship look good to the people. Image over reality. And let's close by this. Honestly, I relate to that too. I relate to that too. I'm not looking at Saul and saying, oh my goodness, how could he possibly? I struggle. I will struggle with wanting a spiritual image that doesn't match the inner reality. And maybe you do too. I mean, are you exactly what you are here when you go home? I hope you are. I hope we are. Because you talk about, that's where, you know, especially for kids, they see all kinds of hypocrisy. So I want to be just as big a knucklehead here as I am at home, because that's the only options I have to be real. But we fight it. We fight wanting people to think higher and, you know, uh, you know, worship and I want to look good. And I think it's a part of the good fight that we're going to fight for the rest of our days. If I had to wait till my motives were completely pure to preach a sermon, you'd be sitting in silence every Sunday. Or until Brad had his heart completely pure, leading worship, we just sit here for like an hour in silence. But a part of the good work is to try to center our souls on God and be real. And that's a part of God's good work in us. And listen, 25% love for God that's real is better than 100% love for God that's not, that's all phony. All right? So let's just say, God, get, get it real in my life. Get it real in my soul. I don't want this to be a what, but what people think. So as we close this morning, let's reaffirm our commitment to be real, to care more about what God says than what people say. And let me end with this positive note. Jesus came to give us success. He came to give us his success. He won it for us. It is finished, he said. It's a lifelong process, although he gives us salvation the moment we trust in him. He gives us his righteousness the moment we trust him. But God working on us, we're a work in progress, and we need God's help, and we need his forgiveness. But he is committed to our ultimate, complete, and eternal success. He who began a good work in us shall be faithful to complete it. Onto the day of Christ Jesus. That's the God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel like we, we flew over a lot of ground this morning. 
I pray that, Father, you will help our hearts to hear your heart. I pray that you will help our minds to grasp your truth. Lord, help us, Lord, in your word to hear you, to love you, to know you, to fear you, but not in terror, but in reverence, because Jesus took terror away. Father, if there's anyone here or watching online who's not a believer, I pray you would just open their eyes right now to see their need for a Savior and to know that Jesus is the Savior, to call upon him and say, save me, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name, Lord. Father, help us to stand on your word, to do it lovingly, humbly, but stand firm on your word. And help us, Lord, help us, fill us with your spirit that we might be growing into the character of Christ in reality, day by day. And help us help each other do that, Lord. We pray all this, thank you for this time together, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.